good morning. It's good to see all of you. And a beautiful, beautiful day that the Lord has given us. Grateful to him for that. Let me open us in prayer, if I may. Father, uh, over these next few minutes, I just pray that your Holy Spirit would teach us that you would uh, help us to understand what you have written for our edification, for our growth, for our understanding, that we might be more and more the men, women, and young people you've called us to be. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your grace. We praise you, Father, for your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I... uh, was very tempted to, to come in my, my uh, Spider-Man pajamas that Mark Carey claimed I was wearing when we uh, went indoors, but he had borrowed them, so I couldn't do that. Today, uh, we're continuing this series on the body of Christ, the God's family in a fallen world. And last week, you may remember that Mark reminded us, Mark pointed out the fact that the church exists for the purpose of bringing glory to God. Um, Clearly, the scriptures tell us in Psalm 19 that nature itself declares the glory of God. A day like this, we can see it. We see the blue skies, we hear the birds, and we're reminded of what a beautiful world that God has given us. And, and really it's true, the heavens do declare the glory and the majesty of God. But like Mark said, the primary means by which God allows his glory to be seen in the world now is through the church. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 12 says, To the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. That is, that as people came to faith in Christ, the purpose of their life was that it would be to the praise of God's glory. Or the very next two verses says, You were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise to the praise of his glory. Why did the Holy Spirit seal you? If you've come to faith in Christ, if you've come to understand that you're a sinner and that you deserve the judgment of God like I do and like everybody else does, but that you believe that Jesus died in your place, you've accepted that free gift of eternal life, the scripture here tells us that the purpose of that is ultimately to the praise of his glory. And... Mark even asked another question at the end of his message. At the end of the message, he asked the question, how is it that God's glory is to be shown through us? How is it that God's glory is to be shown through you or through me? And the next three weeks, we want to try to spend a little time answering that question. And we're going to do it from Ephesians chapter 4. And if you have your Bible handy on your phone or the real thing, I invite you to turn to Ephesians chapter 4 because for the next three weeks, we're going to go through that one chapter. 
And I invite any of you throughout the week to just read through Ephesians chapter 4. Today, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 6, which I would like to read right now from the New American Standard. Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 6. Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. We're going to be looking at this idea today that one of the ways that we manifest the glory of God is through unity in the body of Christ. We're going to be looking at other things next week and the following week about what God teaches us actually leads to his glory being made manifest. First thing I want us to see, though, is at the very beginning where Paul says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord. Uh, this expression is not new. He actually said it in the previous chapter, too. He said he was the prisoner of the Lord in chapter 3. And when we look at that, we would be tempted to overlook it. Or we might be tempted to think, well, yes, of course, Paul's a prisoner. We know that. We know that when he wrote Ephesians, he was in Rome and that he was under Roman guard and that he was living in Rome awaiting a trial. So we know that, that he was a prisoner. But notice that he doesn't say, I'm the prisoner of Rome. He says, I'm the prisoner of the Lord. You see, back when Paul was first saved in Acts chapter 9, there was a man to whom Jesus spoke, and this man was the first man to be a mentor or a discipler to Paul. His name was Ananias. And Jesus told Ananias that Paul was going to be a witness to Gentiles, that is, non-Jews. He was to be a, a witness to kings, and he was to be a, a witness to Jews, and that he was going to suffer much for his namesake, for Jesus' namesake. So you see, all the way back to when Paul first became a Christian, it was already known that he was going to suffer the kinds of things of being a prisoner. A few years earlier... Paul could tell that God was doing something with him. A few years before he was um, imprisoned in Rome, he bid farewell to the elders of Ephesus in Acts chapter 20. It might have been around 58 or 59 AD, but he told them they would no longer see his face. He said it several times. He knew something was afoot. And shortly after that, a prophet came up to him in Acts chapter 21 and told him he was going to be bound and delivered over to the Gentiles. And then, not too long after that, in Acts chapter 23, God told him that he was going to be leaving Jerusalem to testify in Rome. He said, 
On the night immediately following, the Lord stood at his side and said, Take courage, for as you have solemnly witnessed to my cause at Jerusalem, so you must witness at Rome also. So you see, Paul knew that he was right where God wanted him. He was not looking at his circumstances as if this was something new in God's sight. It, it doesn't mean that it was good. It doesn't mean that it was fair that he was put in this position of being a prisoner, but it was part, overall part of God's purposes. And that's why Paul could say, I'm not fundamentally a prisoner of Rome. I'm fundamentally a prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ because the fact that I am here in Rome is no mistake. It was part of God's purpose for my life. Most of us who have believed on Christ tend to believe that we, we did that because we heard this great gift of eternal life. We heard about forgiveness of sin, and that seemed like a great gift to us, and it is. I remember how it changed my life as a 19-year-old hearing that message. And I remember waking up the next morning with my first thought being, I'm going to heaven. At the time, all I knew was that Christ's death on the cross and resurrection was enough to offer me eternal life, and I could believe it. But at that time, my focus was on myself. And I think the majority of us, when, we're, when we believe the gospel, our focus is on ourselves. But, you see, God's purpose in saving you was not fundamentally for you. His purpose in saving you, yes, he loved you, and yes, he wanted you to be blessed if you've come to know Christ. There's no doubt about that. But that wasn't his fundamental purpose. Flip back two chapters to Ephesians chapter 2 to a passage some of you may know. It's actually one of the two passages God used to explain the gospel to me. This is actually how I became a Christian, was these two verses. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Folks, that's as good a news as it gets. <laughs> that you can actually know you're going to heaven? It says have been saved, not might be saved. It says it's by grace, meaning this is something God gives to people who don't deserve it, like me. It comes about through faith in Christ. Great news, but you know, that was enough for me. It was enough for me to believe the truth and to start my Christian life. But do you know, it was over two years before I knew what the next verse said. I mean, I was learning and I was growing, but I just never bothered to notice what the next verse says. So if you're a Christian, you've become a Christian because you believe the truths that are in Ephesians 2, 8, 9. But have we looked at verse 10? It says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. Do we see that? He gives us this gift of eternal life because he loves us and because he wants us to be with him in heaven and because he wants us to be his kid and because he wants to forgive our sins and because he's a God of remarkable grace. But that's not the end of it. That's just the beginning. He ultimately does it with a view towards what he wants to do in your life and what he wants to do in my life. 
And you see, when I believed the gospel, I didn't know that, but that's okay. There are 31,000 verses in the Bible. You don't need to know all 31,000 of them and all that they teach in order to understand the gospel. Uh, it, it, God is so gracious that he makes the water of the gospel as shallow as a child could wade into safely and believe the truth, but he makes it so deep that no person could ever get to the bottom of it. Why do I say that? Why does that connect to him saying he's a prisoner? Well, because I believe that when Paul says, I, the prisoner of the Lord, and I'm going to say this in part because of something we'll see next week, he's saying something that's true about you and me too. We too are prisoners of the Lord. Were we set free when we believe the gospel? Yes. And if any of you don't yet know Christ, if you've never just received that free gift of eternal life, do it today. It is a gift, and, and you can receive it freely. However, I'm saying this. When that happens, God is also doing a work in you. He is setting you apart for his purpose. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5.15 puts it this way. He died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Why did Jesus die for me? Yes, to make me his son and his brother. And yes, to let me go to heaven when I die. And yes, to forgive my sins, absolutely. But fundamentally, he did it so that I would quit living for myself. Rather, I would live for him who died for me and was raised again on my behalf, just like you. And so when we look at this issue of how in the world does a Christian, and not even a Christian, notice he's writing this to the church. He's not writing a private letter to one man, one woman, one young person. He's writing to a church. And he's saying to the church, you will be the manifestation of the very glory of God to the unbelieving world. The unbelieving world will see something in you that will cause them to take notice, and it will... It will open their hearts to be soft to hearing the gospel. Folks, that's exactly what happened in my life. I was living as far away from God as you could possibly live at that time in my life. But I saw something in the guys on my floor who were believers, who happened to be in a Bible study. I saw the glory of the love of Christians. I saw these guys live a different kind of life, and it drew me into the gospel. And he's doing the same thing with you. That is his purpose. That's how his glory is going to be revealed. So the first thing that we need to see in this passage of Ephesians chapter 4, 1 through 6 is how is God going to bring his glory and manifest it through us? Well, first, by us recognizing that we are all prisoners of the Lord if we're in Christ. So that's first. Second, let me read a little further along here. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. What, what calling is that? What calling am I supposed to walk worthy of? Well, in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 4, Paul put it this way, that we would be holy and blameless before him. Wow. If you're a Christian, you and I are called to live holy and blameless before him. A lot of times I don't do that very well. 
maybe you can identify. God knows that, though. God knows that, and he's provided the means, the same means by which he saved you when you were his enemy. Through the blood of Christ, he's provided the means by which any ways you and I fall short of living holy and blameless lives, he forgives us. He applies grace to us. But at the same time, he commands us. He tells us, I want something different out of you. Like, what is the difference he wants out of you? What is the difference he wants out of me? Well, look at the next few verses. He says, this is how you're going to walk worthy of the calling. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. I kind of prefer the old rendering uh, from earlier version that said, uh, exhort you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called, with all humility and meekness, bearing with one another in love, carefully preserving the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. You see, he tells us here that if you're going to glorify me, here's how it's going to happen. It's going to happen by by developing humility and, and, and gentleness. This humility is really considering other people more important than ourselves. It's, it's putting others ahead of ourselves. Uh, there's nobody out here, none of us, who does that naturally. The reason he has to command it is that's not what comes naturally. When I go home, the first thing that I don't, I don't naturally go home and humble myself before God and before Diane and before my family, that's not my natural bent. It's not any of our bent. That's why we have to be commanded. But he tells us with all humility, meaning considering other people more important, what, what does that look like? I, I wonder... I wonder if the humility that he's talking about might be something like the uh, Winchester police officers who, who knelt with and then marched with some people at a peaceful protest earlier this week in Winchester. I wonder if that might be a mark of humility. Um, I wonder if the San Antonio Spurs professional basketball player Lonnie Walker who is an African-American, as he passed out water bottles to officers and thanked them for their service and blessed them in the name of the Lord and then cleaned buildings with graffiti put out there by not peaceful protesters, but people who were, who were being anything but peaceful. I wonder if that's what humility looks like. Paul says with gentleness, Gentleness means strength under control. I wonder when I'm disagreeing with somebody, when I believe I am right about something, when I believe I've got good support for what I believe that's different than what somebody else believes, I wonder if I do that with gentleness. I wonder if whatever strength I have is under control or, or whether I'm resentful and hostile. gentleness. Then Paul says with patience. Patience just means that you suffer long. 
That's what it means. You know, when I think of patience in the current unrest that we've been experiencing, I, I think it has to take a remarkable amount of patience if somebody is a person of color and they have been ill-treated because of the color of their skin, a gift from God, to continue to bear up with that has got to be hard. I think I would be so tempted towards bitterness. And so for people who are able to say, God has given me a gift and I'm going to endure this, and then find ways to still trust God and find ways to still be gracious and still find ways to speak up. That's got to be hard. I think about what went on a little over a month ago after Pakistan closed down due to COVID and they stopped allowing people to go to work. Do you realize that Pakistan government and agencies working with them passed out food to the people who couldn't work because there a lot of the people are living, they have to get enough money every day from their work to eat for that day. And you realize that what went on was through the loudspeakers as they handed out the food, they said, this is for Muslims only. If you are Christian, you can only have food for your children if you'll convert. How do you suffer along with that? That's exactly what Paul is commanding because these words are just as true for somebody in Winchester, Virginia, as inner city Chicago, as Pakistan. In other words, if God is going to be seen, if his glory is going to be manifest, his people are going to recognize they are prisoners of the Lord and they're going to exhibit humility and gentleness and tolerance and, and patient endurance in love. Now, I clearly don't know all the ways to do that. I, I have to work on that in my own life. Every one of us does. And if it was easy, it wouldn't need to be commanded us. But it needs to be commanded because that which comes naturally to me, which is to push you away or to ignore you or to be resentful, will not bring God's glory. It will just make me feel a little better for the short haul. And notice, Paul says, all of this is to be done in love, carefully preserving the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. In other words, that there is something unique about unity in the body that has the power to make people take notice. God's glory will be seen in the world if you and I who are Christians will recognize that we have been called to be prisoners who are to be humble and gentle and tolerant and enduring long. It's not unlike that passage we read together as a body a little bit ago, that Philippians 2 passage that tells us that although he existed in the form of God, Jesus didn't regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself and took on the form of a servant. Being made in the likeness of man, he humbled himself, even to the point of death. You know, think about it. In the body of Christ, we have mask wearers and we have non-mask wearers. 
We have men, we have women. We've got people from religious backgrounds and irreligious backgrounds. We have old, infirmed people like Mark. We have young and virile people like me. We have northerners and southerners and midwesterners. For the Dr. Seuss fans among us, we have star belly sneeches and sneeches without stars on their bellies. We have people of different colors and ethnicities. We have people who want to be politically active and people who want to stay away from active politics. And in the middle of that, God has said, if you're known by the name of Jesus, remember that like Paul, you're to be a prisoner of his and his purpose. You're to no longer live for your own purpose. You're to live for him who died for you and was raised again. How do I do that? Well, you do it by exhibiting humility and gentleness and tolerance. You forbear with people patiently. And you do it so that the unity of the Spirit will be maintained. Why? Well, because it's interesting, but the unity of the Spirit is one of the main things by which the unbelieving world will take notice of the gospel. Do you remember what Jesus said in John chapter 17 and verse 21? He said, I don't just pray for these, that is his disciples, but those whom you're going to send later. And he says, I pray that they might be one even as we are one, that the world might believe. Do you see that, folks? That's prophetic. Jesus is saying that when the body of Christ functions like a unit, It's the most powerful display to the world that there is a living God who sent his one and only son to die in their place and offer them eternal life. And I don't know about you, but when I get myself tripped up in all these minor, minor compared to the glory of God, that is, squabbles over how viruses need to be responded to and over political argumentation and all the rest, and the glory of God gets covered over as we major on the minors and minor on the major. What is the major? It's the glory of God. How does it come about? By humbling myself. By showing more love and more other-centeredness to somebody than I do my own sense of rightness. That according to what the Holy Spirit inspired the Apostle Paul to write, that's what actually causes the glory of God to be noticed. Look at the last few verses here. Look what it says. Verse 4, For there is one body and one spirit, just as you were also called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. See, here's the point. Why is unity one of the characteristics? We'll look at a couple of other characteristics next week and the following week, but why is unity the leading characteristic that has the chance of demonstrating the glory of God? Well, here's why. Because unity, which doesn't come naturally, 
You know, remember, believers are, are still people who sin. And sin tends to divide, right? We divide with people in our own family. We divide with somebody next door to us. We divide with people of, of similar political persuasions, of similar family backgrounds. I mean, we, we divide from people who are even like us, let alone not like us. But through Christ, when he is magnified and he's more important and I recognize I don't live for myself and I humble myself and I'm gentle with you, even if I disagree and I forbear with you and you do with me, what ends up happening is it produces a kind of unity and this is the thing. Unity points to the fact that there's only one God. Look at this. Why should there not be division in the body? Well, because there's only one body. Why should there be unity? Well, because there's only one spirit. Because we were all called in one hope. However you came to faith in Christ, you were called in the same hope I was. It's the hope that Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, died in your place like he did mine and was raised from the dead to offer forgiveness and eternal life to all who would believe. That is a hope, a remarkable hope. But not only that, he is, Jesus is the one Lord before whom we bow our knee. We only have one faith. We can argue over so many things in the body of Christ. I still remember the first time that one faith really meant something to me, and it was when I was in the stadium at RFK when Promise Keepers was there in 1994, and a bunch of, some of you guys were there. Um, and I remember seeing people from every Christian stripe, 50,000 of us, and I remembered at that moment how many of the things that I had spent my time focusing on were far less important than the centrality of Jesus Christ and his glory and of bending our knees before him. And that's exactly what Paul is saying here. I'm not saying that doctrine doesn't matter. I'm not saying that it doesn't matter to teach truth. Obviously, I'm not, or I wouldn't be going through the Bible like this, which we always do here. But what we have to remember is that when we're under Christ, it is one faith, it is one Lord, it is one hope, it's one baptism. When we have a baptism here at Fellowship Bible, which we have two or three times a year, <coughs> it's people of all ages, some who are young. You know, you might have a seven-year-old girl there who says, my mom or my Sunday school teacher or my whomever, Help me understand how Jesus' death was enough for me to be forgiven, and I believed it. And so I just want to obey him, and that's why I'm being baptized. Or we might have a 71-year-old man get up there and say, you know, I've been around the church all my life. I didn't really understand the gospel until I was 62, and I just never bothered to get baptized, and I want to do it because I want to declare that I'm Christ. He died for me. Why? Because it doesn't matter what age you're baptized. It means that when you're baptized, you're exalting the same Christ who died for you and your faith in him, period. It's one baptism. Why is it one baptism? Well, because that one baptism is a testimony to the one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. When I function in a way that increases 
humility and gentleness, patient endurance. When I'm more interested in loving you than I am in asserting myself, when that gets combined with other young people and men and women who do the very same thing, people notice it, and when they do, they're saying, what is it about you people? And our answer should be pretty much the same. Well, you see, there's only one God. You see, there's only one Lord. You see, there's only one faith. It's Jesus. And if you see anything good in us, he's the reason. Left to myself, I would be an angry, loudmouthed, drunken idiot. And according to Mark, I'm only a few of those things now. But in Christ, I'm forgiven, and I'm a new man, and I'm becoming a little more like Jesus. And if we're all doing that, and we're applying what we just got through reading, what should happen is that this place, these people, we should become a little more unified, regardless of who we are, regardless of our background, because we're ultimately interested in one person. We live before an audience of one. And his name is Jesus. I'd like to pray, and we'll pick up on this next time. We'll see how the glory of God actually not only utilizes the unity that's meant to take place, but we're going to see how God does something else that actually involves every single believer. We'll look at that next week. Father, we give you thanks and praise for the fact that we can worship you freely like this. I'm seeing signs, Father, around even this country where that's becoming less so. I think of the church where because a pastor happened to tweet something on some public platform and just say something he thought uh, that within a week or two, the uh, 60,000 people of that church uh, will no longer have a place to meet even though they were doing things in the inner city and throughout the city that were marvelous, 60,000 people, but because they didn't want to spend money on buildings, they were using high schools, and somebody thought that something he said was offensive. And as a result, they've withdrawn his, the leases for the high schools that they were using. Father, this is a time of division. It's a time of much strife, but it's a time in the middle of that that it's no surprise to you. You know right where we are. And we who are in Christ are your prisoners in the sense that you have captured us for your purpose. Lord, show us this week, show each one of us this week how we can follow this purpose of the calling, that we might be people of humility and people of gentleness and people of tolerance and forbearance so that the unity of the faith might be preserved and that the name of the Lord Jesus might be exalted above all. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.